you, and I, I hope you do, uh, open again to the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 49. I have to admit, when I hear uh, Brother get up and lead the communion, and the things that he's sharing dovetail so beautifully with what the Lord's laid on my heart to preach on, and we haven't conferred and planned ahead I found out on Thursday night that Proven was going to preach or bring that communion meditation on Isaiah 40, and I was just marveling because it's just perfectly fitted with what we're going to discuss this morning from Isaiah 49. It's been a few weeks since we were in Isaiah 49, so just to give you a recap of what we've looked at, in verse 1 we, could, we saw the servant's preparation for his servants, his service. He was called, he was named, he was prepared as a sharpened sword and a polished arrow, all to serve. In verse 2, we saw the servant's practice of ministry. He proclaimed the truth of God to God's people. In verse 3, we saw the servant's purpose in ministry. He proclaimed the truth of God to God's people. And he also, sorry, his purpose for ministry was to glorify God through his words his deeds and his suffering and death. In verse 3 also we saw the servant's identity is Israel. Christ is the true Israel of God. All the promises of God, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, are yes and amen in Christ. In verse 4 we saw that the servant trusts the Lord despite seeming futile service. In fact, our sermon, our, our text this morning is kind of God's answer to that statement. He trusted the Lord for the reward of his servant, his service, and he trusted the Lord for the strength in which to serve. And then in verse 6, we see the servant's mission was to raise and restore Israel, but that was too small a thing. And so God gave him an expanded mission to be the light to the Gentiles in order to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So there would be one flock and one shepherd, as Jesus said in John 10, and as Paul said in Ephesians 2, one new man and one new body. And we considered those truths uh, some months ago when we were looking at Isaiah 42, so we didn't go over those again this time, but... Then we can see in verse 7, the servant's effective ministry as kings and princes and rulers would bow before him. And now today, in verses 8 to 13, we see the Lord's work to help his service, his servant. In verses 8 and the first part of verse 9, we see the Lord helps his servant to save his people. And then verse 9, the end, all the way down to verse 12, we see the Lord saves His people and the prisoners. And then in verse 13, the servant song wraps up in this explosion of praise. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. But the question is, and it has to be asked is, why is the Lord telling us all these things about His work on behalf of the servant? And the prophet Isaiah, through him, the Lord is reassuring the exiles of His promise and His power to deliver them from exile through His suffering servant. 
And the message in question of the, the whole book of Isaiah is simply this. Will we trust the Lord? You remember those two kings? We've mentioned them several times. That Ahaz, who failed to trust the Lord, and Hezekiah, uh, West described me the other day as vacillating back and forth. Uh, Hezekiah first, who trusts in Egypt, but in the end... He came good and he trusted in the Lord. And those are two examples that Isaiah sets forth in uh, chapter 1 to 39. And then in 40 all the way to 55, he's talking about, he's actually speaking to exiles who are 200 years past uh, Isaiah's time and he's encouraging them to trust the Lord, even though they're in exile. And so... Through Isaiah's pen, God is encouraging us to trust in Him. We all need encouragement to trust because trust is not easy. If you're sitting there this morning and you say to yourself, you know, faith in God is not easy. I get it. I'm with you. Faith is not easy. It is a difficult thing to trust. Real, genuine trust in God is not free of doubts, but... Genuine faith wrestles with doubts, encouraged and armed with the great truths of God. And our God knows the struggles we have, and so He gives us many encouragements in Scripture to trust in Him. And encouragement, as we were saying last week, comes in the form of great truths, not only to hear, not only to know, but to store up in our hearts as the basis, the foundation for why we trust in the Lord our God. Oh, by the way, happy Father's Day. I don't think we've mentioned it this morning, but it is Father's Day, and, and uh, we do wish you a happy Father's Day. But on this Father's Day, I want you to come and I want you to see the Lord, the Father, helping His Son, the Servant. See this morning and be encouraged to trust the Lord who is our salvation. There are many reasons in this text for us to trust the Lord, but we're going to look at them under two different headings. We'll take the most time with the first one and a short amount of time with the second one. First of all, the Lord helps His servant. And secondly, the Lord saves His people. So notice in verse number 8, the Lord helps His servant specifically to accomplish our salvation. The Lord has helped His Son, the suffering servant, to save us. I want you to notice in your Bibles in verse number 8, He talks about an acceptable or a favorable time. And most commentators would say He is alluding to or referring to a great day of jubilee because in context, he's talking about inheritances restored and captives set free, which is what the day of Jubilee back in Leviticus 25 is all about. But in the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2 quotes this verse out of verse 8 to make the point that this present time is the time of the Lord's salvation available to us all. So clearly, the text is referring to the Father helping the servant to save us. Now, we would say, of all humankind, certainly Christ needed the least help. I mean, He was truly man. 
the absolute perfection of humanity. And he is truly God with the same divine essence as the Godhead, omnipotent and all the rest of it. Yet the Lord states very clearly, I have helped you. I have heard you and so on. The Lord states his help to the servant. Well, how did he help him? Notice, first of all, by the way, if you got the bulletin on the email, you should be able to see an outline there and you can just track along with that outline and see all the verses there. In verse 8, the Lord heard the servant. Look what he says. In an acceptable time, I have heard you. The father helped his son, the servant, by hearing his prayers. The Bible says in Hebrews 5 and verse 7 that Christ in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. His prayers were heard. In Luke 3, Christ prays after his baptism and right before his temptation, and we're sure he was heard. The Bible says it. In Luke 9, Christ prayed before choosing the disciples and he was heard. The Gospels all describe, in various ways, Christ often going alone and apart and spending time with his Father in prayer. In John 17, Christ prayed his high priestly prayer and he was heard. In Luke 22, Christ uh, prayed in the garden before his suffering and he was heard. In Luke 23, twice from the cross, Christ prayed and he was heard. Brother and sister, how often do we as the church, as ministries, as leadership, dive off into something without first crying out to God in prayer? If the servant needed to pray, then certainly we need to pray. And the wonderful truth is, the great encouraging truth is, he was heard. The Lord faithfully helped his servant by hearing his many prayers, especially those prayers offered around his suffering and death. And you and I, as believers in Christ, have been called to continue Christ's work to proclaim the truth. And just as Christ's prayers were heard, so he'll hear our prayers as well. Notice, secondly, how the Lord helped His servant. It says just simply, I have helped you, right in the middle of verse 8. God the Holy Spirit was near to Christ in those darkest of moments. Listen to what He says in Isaiah 50 in verses 6 to 9. And it's the words of the servant speaking, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who is near, who sorry, he is near, who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Surely. The Lord God will help me. The Father helped the Son in His suffering to save us. Note that phrase. He is near who justifies me. The assurance of Christ's own justification being raised from the dead to prove His deity and sinlessness was also the Lord's help. Even though Christ 
uh, endured all that the cross meant. He was helped. He trusted in the Lord who helped him and raised him up. The Bible says in Acts 2.24, and it's Peter preaching on Pentecost morning, and he says that God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The Lord helped the servant in the day of salvation. That was reassurance. The exiles reading this, 200 years after Isaiah wrote it, it was reassurance to the exiles of their coming deliverance. God had promised 70 years of exile, and I'll send you back. I'll bring you back to the land. They had that great promise. And that same words, those words are the reassurance to us of our deliverance, our help in ministry. No matter what, service for the Lord may mean. And it might mean separation. It might mean rejection. It might mean mocking and scorn and laughter, etc. The reality is, we don't take one step, back it up. We don't even beat one beat of a heartbeat, back it up. Our brains don't even send the impulse to make our heart beat once without God's power at work. That's what Peter was talking about this morning. He prayed that they would know the power of God at work towards them. And it's not just for ministry, it's for all of life. And the reality is, brother and sister, we have the Lord helping us. Just as Christ helped to save us, so He will help us in evangelism. He helped Christ to accomplish our salvation. He will help us as we take that message of salvation to the nations. I'm looking forward to getting back to the book of Acts in a few weeks because it ties beautifully right behind this. Stephen, who stands up and makes a public declaration, and the Lord helped him through it all. Well, that's next week's sermon, so we'll leave that for later. But listen, just as Christ was helped to save us, so God will help us as we spread the news of God's salvation. Thirdly, Notice also in verse 8, he says, I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. The Lord preserved the servant through the work of salvation, but didn't start there. He was preserved from harm all through his infancy by God's sovereign care and leading him and keeping him away from those who would harm him. He was preserved from harm all through his ministry. Remember the times when the Pharisees and the Jews and the Herodians were trying to kill him and God preserved him from it. He was preserved through death. His body did not suffer decay or corruption. His body was not permitted to experience those things. In fact, Peter, in Acts 2, verses 25 to 28 quotes Psalm 16:11 that Christ was preserved he did not allow his holy one to see corruption his body didn't break down and decay he was preserved through the work of salvation his death and to his resurrection and brothers and sisters the point's the same just as Christ was preserved through his service so he'll preserve us the lord preserving his servant is his assurance to us of our preservation throughout our lives of service to God. Brothers and sisters, beloved, trust the Lord. He will preserve us right through all the circumstances. This world is going crazy around us, but our God will see us through. Fourthly, 
In verse 8, also notice the Lord gave him as a covenant to the people. He says in verse 8, I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth and to those who are in darkness, show yourself and so on. The Lord gave the servant as a new covenant to the people. The Lord helped Christ to accomplish our salvation by giving him as a covenant. Now, Jeremiah 31 and 32 tells us, sadly, that God says that Israel broke God's covenant by their disobedience. But God, in faithfulness to his word and to his people, determined to establish a new covenant. And in that new covenant... The wonderful truth is the scope of the recipients of that covenant was expanded to include Jew and Gentile. Remember back in verse 6, it talks about how he would raise him up to restore the preserved ones of Israel and to gather the tribes of Jacob and also to give him as a light to the Gentiles with a purpose. That you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So all of the earth now falls under the scope of that covenant. All those who will come, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. All those who will come by faith in God and know God's salvation will be included in that covenant. Proven a revenant this morning. We're taking communion. This is the new covenant in my blood. And we're remembering that covenant relationship that God has established in Christ to join us to him, to bring us to God. Christ is the, Christ the servant is the embodiment of God's covenant to the people. What that means is all the blessings of the new covenant are found in Christ. Now, we went through these back in Isaiah 42, so I'll just list them briefly. But just get this. You want some encouragement to trust the Lord? Think of this. The blessing of regeneration, of being born again, is found only in Christ. The blessing of forgiveness of sin, where is it found? In Christ. The blessing of reconciliation with God, where is it going to be found? In Christ. The blessing of justification and sanctification, the blessing of an inheritance which is God Himself is found in Christ. The blessing of eternal life is found only in Christ. The blessing, get this, the blessing of inclusion with God's people is found only in Christ. I was looking in Ephesians 2 this week on a different matter. I discovered these two phrases are almost parallel with a difference. In Ephesians 2 verse 12, Paul says, we were aliens and strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. And then in Ephesians 2.19, what's he say? We are no longer aliens and strangers. Now we are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. We are included in God's people. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter, writing to Gentile Christians, describes Gentile Christians as a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people. It's the exact same language. It's almost a quote right out of Deuteronomy that God used of His Old Testament people Israel. 
All those rich, glorious blessings are found in the new covenant with Christ, in Christ. But here's the point. You say, how does that help me trust Him? Think of this. God's faithfulness to His Word and to His people, despite their disobedience, is the grounds for our trust in Him. They broke that covenant and God says, okay, Let's make a new covenant, but a much bigger, greater covenant, and it'll include all the nations of the world in that covenant. And God gave the servant as a covenant to the people, Jew and Gentile. And he has three purposes written there. It's in the, uh, the end of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9. You say, how do we understand these purposes? Well, there is partial fulfillment, but really they're a metaphor of God's deliverance of all people from prison, of spiritual darkness and ignorance through the work of the servant. Notice, first of all, he says, I will restore the earth. That's not merely the promised land, but you go back to Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, and what you see there is all creation groans, longing for restoration and an end to the futility to which it was subjected to because of sin. Look at the world around us. Floods, fires, earthquakes, all tsunamis, all this stuff going on. The earth is groaning, longing for the day when it will be fully restored. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Notice, secondly, he says, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Now, Absolutely, it was partially fulfilled when the exiles returned to the land. But that's small, it's true, but it's ultimately and far greater. The fulfillment is the inheritance of a new heavens and a new earth. We look forward to that great day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth and we will exist as God's people on that new earth. Notice also in verse 12, he's talking about nations that will come and be a part of that. Not just one, but many nations will come. And thirdly, he says that his purpose is to set the prisoners free. And you've got there in verse number 9 that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourself. Listen, we'll look at that in a bit more detail in a second, but listen to this. God helped His servant to effect God's great salvation to all the nations. He helped him by hearing his prayers. He helped him by empowering him through the work for the work of salvation. Uh, Puvan was reading about the arm of the Lord. I just my, my thoughts went ahead to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The strength, the power of God to accomplish salvation. He helped him. He helped him by preserving him through suffering and death and resurrection. God helped him and so gave him as the new covenant to the nations. And how was it all experienced? The servant prayed in faith and godly fear. And he was heard and helped. The servant trusted God in his suffering and death, and he was helped in accomplishing that salvation. The servant trusted God. God takes us in our lives to some extremes at times. God said to Christ, hang on a cross and die, and trust me, I will raise you again on the third day. Of all the lengths that God has taken us to, none of us has been taken to that length. 
Except that when we die, we do. We are trusting God that He'll save us. He'll raise us up. So the same way in which the servant, who we can say probably needed help less than any of us, less than all of us put together, he trusted and God helped him. He trusted and God heard him. He trusted and God raised him from the dead. So, having said all that, two applications I want to bring in. The first one is to the church, the genuine believers in Christ. Christ has called us, you and me, to continue His work of taking the good news of salvation to the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's promised to be with us, to never leave us, and never forsake us. But listen, the life of discipleship that we are called to must be lived by faith in God, by trusting God. This work which He's commissioned us to, it must be lived by faith, must be done by faith. The question, the message of the whole book of Isaiah is, will God's people trust in Him? God in our passage is giving us great evidence to trust in Him for all the work and all the life that He called us to. God, who heard His servants' prayers, will hear your prayers and mine as we pray in the Savior's name, as we pray in faith about life, and family, and friends. As we pray in faith regarding the church, and ministry, and evangelism, and fellowship, and all those other things, as we get together in groups on Wednesday night, and smaller groups in the Bible studies, and by ourselves every day, and cry out to God in faithful prayer, God will hear. Pray, Christian. Just as surely as Christ prayed. Pray in the certainty that God will hear your prayers. God who helped his servant in his servant to sorry God who helped his servant to save us will help us in our life and service for him Piper made uh, John Piper sorry made this uh, comment that God's call God's command to obey imparts the strength to do it it's like when he says come that command imparts the strength to us as we put up and start to come forward and obey it. It's the strength to carry it out. God says, go and preach. That command imparts the strength, the power to go and preach. God says, stand firm on the truth. Don't compromise. And that command imparts the strength, the help that He will give us to stand firm on the truth and not compromise what the Bible says. He will preserve, sorry, God preserved the servant through suffering and death and resurrection and God will preserve us through our sufferings, through, his, through this life until Christ returns visibly in power and great glory. He'll preserve us though the enemy take and destroy everything we have. He'll preserve us, though friends and family abandon us. He'll preserve us, though our nation, our government, will turn against us. And they are surely doing that. God will preserve us. God who gave His covenant, His people, sorry, God who gave His servant as the new covenant to His people, will surely keep all of His covenant promises to us. But the question is, brother and sister, will we trust Him? The evidence 
of our trust is not merely the words, I trust in God. It's a whole life lived in absolute surrender to God and His will. It's a life lived casting ourselves on God, just as Christ did through His life, His service, His suffering, and His death. Trusting in Him is displayed as we pray for the impossible, what we think is impossible. Trusting Him is determining to obey God despite the obstacles. But my thoughts keep going back to that scene. The people of Israel fleeing across the desert and Pharaoh and his chariots and his army thundering along behind them. And God closes them in. There's mountains on both sides. There's a great army behind them and a raging sea in front of them. What are they going to do? They cried out to God for help. And God, in a display of his power, split the sea. And the people walked through on dry ground. God helped them. God preserved them through the work and through that journey He called them on. And God will supply our needs. God will preserve us through those things. Faith is displayed as we pray for the impossible. The risk of taking too much time. I just keep thinking back to George Mueller. Here's the guy who decided and determined early in his ministry that he would not make his needs known. He would simply make them known to God. At the height of his ministry, he was supporting over a thousand orphans in, I think, two or three different large buildings to the extent that they would gather the boys and girls together in the mornings for breakfast where the cooks would have nothing in the kitchen to give them and they would start praying and giving thanks for breakfast. That's faith, right? Here you are sitting down, plate, fork, spoon, cup right there, and you're bowing your head, Lord, we thank you for this fruit. And the cooks are like, we ain't got nothing. And as they're praying, a guy out driving his wagon out front with a load full of fresh bread and the wheel breaks on the wagon and the, and the wagon lurches to a halt right out front of his, his bakery, of his orphanages. And he goes up the door. Mr. Mueller, can you use bread? Because I'm stuck. I can't move the bread and I've got to get rid of it. And so they unload all the bread. And as they're doing that, somebody else comes by. There's a milk cart. It came by and, and surprise, surprise. I can't remember the exact details, but it broke down as well. Could you use some fresh milk? We could use fresh milk. And they start unloading the fresh milk. And so as they're giving thanks and saying amen, the cooks are passing out bread and milk for the boys and girls to eat. And we say, oh yeah, but that was then. This is now. No. That was God. And God hasn't changed. Brother and sister in Christ, genuine faith is trusting God, not just for the possible, but for the seeming impossible. Genuine faith is determining to obey God despite all the obstacles. I had a second application, and basically what it is is the second point of my message. So, secondly, verse 9, we trust the Lord who comforts His people. Let's read again, Isaiah 49. I'm going to read 8 to 12. The Word of God says, Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to those who are in darkness, Show yourself. 
They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all the desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them, even by the springs of water. He will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look those from the north and the west, and from the lands of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. We want you to trust the Lord. Those of you listening, if there's some listening that don't know Christ as Savior, then listen up. This is for you. The Lord comforts His people in verse 13. Now here certainly is the answer to the prophet's call right back in 40 and verse 1 when God inspires him to say, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Now certainly there's an immediate fulfillment of that as the exiles return to the land. There's a greater fulfillment, an infinitely greater fulfillment in Christ dying for his people's sin, as Puvan was reminding us. And there's a final fulfillment of all that, ultimate fulfillment, as God's people being saved at Christ's return. One day Christ will come again. And we shall see Him as He comes in power and glory. And He will gather all the nations and He will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep He will keep to His right hand. And the goats will be thrust away from Him on His left hand. That's that final salvation. He's talking about the comfort that God gives His people as Christ effects their salvation. The Lord's comfort comes, brother and sister, as we trust Him. By faith we are saved. It's by faith. We trust Christ. And that's the comfort of God's people to us. Sorry, that's God's comfort to us, God's people. Secondly, in verse 13, he says, The Lord has mercy on his afflicted. The immediate partial fulfillment of that is the exiles are delivered back to the land. But far greater is God's mercy extended to us through Christ. We know. The mercy is God's goodness to the undeserving. We are all sinners deserving God's wrath for our sin. And Christ the servant's death satisfied all of God's justice. Like I prayed before, it is finished. God's justice was fully met at the cross. Christ's death paid the sinner's debt, and Christ's, mercy, Christ's death enables God's mercy. Praise God, He's not an unmerciful Savior or an unrighteous Savior, is what I mean to say. In other words, He doesn't simply save us because we're all nice people, and He simply decides to let bygones be bygones. No, the wonderful truth of the Gospel is that God pours out all of His justice on Christ doesn't restrain, doesn't hold back. The full full force of His wrath is poured out on Jesus that He might give us the full depth, the full measure of His grace and mercy to us. Mercy is God's goodness to the undeserving. We are all sinners, deserving God's wrath for our sin. And Christ, His death, 
satisfied God's justice. Christ's death paid the sinner's debt. And Christ's death enables God's mercy. And through God's salvation, we have the tremendous comfort of knowing that judgment is exhausted and forgiveness can be ours if we trust Him. (laughs) It's the same message. The life of faith doesn't begin and end in a moment of trust when you become a Christian. The life of faith begins the moment you become a Christian and the faith grows and gets stronger and deeper as God takes you and leads you further down this life of faith with Him. We know God's comfort as we trust Him. Thirdly, the Lord calls His people to salvation. Notice in verse 9, he commands the prisoners to depart from prison. Now, some would say that's a partial fulfillment as the exiles leave Babylon. Although, strictly speaking, there's no evidence anywhere in history that the Jewish exiles were actually imprisoned. More than likely, they were taken to Babylon and they were left to live there, used in some circumstances, but prison wasn't necessarily one of them. In fact, they can't find evidence that prison was one of those things. So the prisoners here almost certainly means those imprisoned in spiritual darkness. Paul in Romans 6 describes us as slaves to sin. Paul in Colossians 1.13 says, The Lord has delivered us out of the domain of darkness. Notice those commands. The two imperative commands in there. Go forth and show yourselves. What's he saying? He's calling to all of us through his word, by his servants, to all who are in slavery to sin, to all of us who are imprisoned in darkness, to come into the light. Who is the light? It's Christ. He's the light of God's truth to the Gentiles, to come into that light. You and I are sinners, but Christ's death paid our ransom to God. You and I were sinners, but by trusting God, by stepping away from sin, by turning towards God, we can be included in God's new covenant of salvation. Brother, my friend, you can know that deep in your own soul the blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation and justification and sanctification and eternal life and inclusion in God's special people. You and I, can know freedom from sin and freedom from darkness. But the key is the same. Will we trust Him? Let me just phrase it like this. Faith is not wishful thinking. Will you stop trusting in wishful thinking and trust in God? Will you stop trusting in good religious works and trust in God? Will you stop trusting in yourself and start trusting fully in God? He heard His servant's prayer. He will hear yours as you come to Him in faith and cry out to God for forgiveness and mercy and salvation. He helped his servant throughout his life and ministry. Brother, sister, my friend, he will help you and I. Because he knows. As surely as his servant needed help, we infinitely more need his help. 
He preserved His servant. He will preserve us as well. But will we trust Him? And that's the key to it all. Whether the exiles listening to this message, reading this book in, in exile, 200 years earlier, separated from the land, from the priesthood, from the temple, which was now destroyed, all of that, all they had left was God to trust in. Would they trust Him that He would set them free and deliver them back to the land? And they had to make that decision. My friend, you and I, listening to this, God has sent Christ to be the Savior of sinners. You and I are sinners surely before Him. God's wrath is surely coming. You can see the storm clouds of it building as you look at what's going on in the world. The day will come when Christ will return. He will gather all the nations before Him and the sheep will be separated from the goats. And for the first time in all of history, God's people will be purely and only God's people on His right side and God's rejected will be only God's rejected on His left side and He will cast those who have refused to trust Him into an everlasting hell. That's a pretty grim message for, for Father's Day. But it's actually the greatest message of all. Because by trusting in Christ as Savior, we can know what it means to be set free, to be forgiven for all the debt against us to be wiped away. We can know what it is to have the Spirit of God fill us to enable us to live a life that is not only pleasing to God, but is the absolute heights of joy for each of us if we'll trust Him. And God, through His prophet Isaiah, gave the exiles so many great reasons to trust Him. God has given us so many great reasons to trust Him. I was talking to someone just a couple of days ago about unforgivable sin. And I said, you know, the only unforgivable sin is the sin of disbelief, of refusing to believe and trust in God. It's the only sin that will keep you out of heaven. Brother and sister, sorry, it's the only sin that can't be forgiven. All sin will keep you out of heaven. I didn't mean, I got that messed around. But you know what I'm trying to say? Every other sin that we commit can be forgiven. But if we stand back and staunchly refuse to believe, staunchly refuse to trust in God, that will keep you out of heaven. That will keep you out of all the blessings of Christ that are given to us and guaranteed to us in that new covenant. But the question remains the same. Will you trust Him? And we may or may not look. If you have the bulletin in front of you, there's still, I think, four more items there. The Lord feeding and protecting and leading and gathering His people. I think we'll look at those next Sunday and we'll start Acts the one after. But brother and sister in Christ, will you trust Him today? Will you cry out to God in prayer? Prayer is the sweetest and simplest form of faith that we can exercise. I urge you, I plead with you to trust the Lord and know that great joy, know that forgiveness, know that great peace in your heart, and know God's enabling strength, the power of God at work toward us as we go through this life. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank You and we praise You, O God, for Your servant. 
And Father, we thank You that for all those moments when He departed to be by Himself with You in prayer. And what a great encouragement, what a great challenge to our own lives to take time to be alone with God in prayer. Father, we thank You and we praise You for His life, the example and illustration for how we should live. Father, we thank You for His faith as He trusted You in those moments Actually, he trusted you all through his life. And the greatest example of faith is he trusted you in his death. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O oh God, that you helped him. And it's the assurance that you will help us. And Father, as we look at what's going on in our world, in our culture, in our politics, in this country, this state, it would seem that the call to follow Christ is becoming harder and higher. There is seemingly some great obstacles in our way. But Father, we hear Your voice to come and follow Me. We hear Your voice calling us to step out in faith-filled obedience. And so, Father, we cry out to You for the help that we might obey. Father, we give thanks that You preserved Christ throughout His life and His ministry and through His death to His resurrection. And Father, we give thanks that You will preserve us also. Father, I had the joy of standing with some loved ones around a funeral, around a graveside the other day. And Father, the quiet joy which they shared together displayed their hope in You. And in a day to come soon, we will see our departed loved one again. We have the absolute hope of being preserved that one day Christ will return and we will see Him and all those who have gone on ahead will be raised from the dead and we will be caught up to meet them in the air. Father, we thank You for that great hope that we will see our loved ones again, that You will preserve us until Christ returns. Father, we ask You this morning for the Christian who is watching this, whose faith is just struggling and waning, Father, we pray that You would shore them up, encourage their hearts deeply in the things of God this day. To trust You a little more, to go a little further, to take another step. Father, for those who are watching who have never truly trusted in Christ, Father, I cry out to You for them. And Lord, each of us has perhaps a name or a face on our hearts of a loved one who doesn't know and trust in Christ. Father, we cry out to You on their behalf that they would truly trust in You and know all the blessings of the new covenant in Christ, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, eternal life, inclusion in God's people. Father, we thank You for all these tremendous blessings. They all come in Christ. Father, we ask You for help now as we would close, Lord for perhaps a little time of fellowship that we'll enjoy together, we ask You, Lord, for Your blessing. And we give thanks, Lord, for this day of worship together. And we do so in the precious name of Christ. Amen.